I'm, I'm sure you've noticed that for a secular culture like ours that says this life is all there is. We sure are fascinated with the idea of life after death. You know, it's, it's almost like clockwork, right? There'll be stories that appear in the press. A new book will come out of, of someone who, who's like almost got to heaven and then, and then came back. And, and they report on what they experienced. And it's, it's always, almost always it seems like it's the same. They see a bright white light. They hear a reassuring voice. There's this overwhelming sense of peace. And, and then, of course, there's just our pop culture, Right. So you've got movies. Well, the year Adrian and I got married, the, the, the smash box office hit was a movie called Ghost. But, but that certainly wasn't the last one of movies like this. There, there's, you know, The Sixth Sense. There's Disney's Coco. And, of course, most recently, Soul. I'm sure many of you have seen that. All box office hits. All about life after death. What's also clear, though, as we pay attention to our culture's fascination with this idea is that our fascination isn't really about life after death. It's, it really is about life here on Earth. If you pay attention to these stories, and they all seem to be the same, whether they're purporting to be true, like someone really kind of came back, or it's, it's our culture and it's, it's sort of movie and book fictions, Regardless, the ghost story hero is deeply aware that that once he's absorbed into that bright white light, it's all over. There's this absorption into the great beyond and like who knows what happens. and, and, And so instead, the ghost story hero is really concerned about trying to get back. He doesn't really want to go into that great bright white light. He wants to get back to, to what really matters, life here on earth. And, and as these stories go, typically, it's only when finally he's wrapped everything up here, finally when she's kind of satisfied that everything's been taken care of here, only then, and rather reluctantly and somewhat wistfully with a glance over their shoulder, do they agree to finally be there? We've been considering the book of Revelation. And our passage this morning actually gives us a sneak peek on life after death. And, and I think one of the things it does is it, is it confronts us, certainly confronts our culture, with, with whether or not, maybe, maybe we've got it backwards. Well, what if what really matters is not here, but there? Well, what, what if what really matters is that life after death? And what if that life is not anything like what we thought it was? Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation 20. Revelation chapter 20. If you are um, new to, to uh, managing, like navigating your way uh, in a Bible, 
Revelation is the very last book of the Bible. So if you get to the, the index and the maps, you've gone too far. Just just go left a little bit. Uh, the, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. So Revelation 20 is chapter 20. The small numbers that I'll refer to are the verse numbers. I think you're going to be really helped if uh, you just leave your Bible open and we will kind of work through this passage together. Now, we have finally come, and I'm deeply aware of this, to what many of you have been waiting for. You've been waiting for this sermon. You've been waiting for this passage. We have finally come to the millennial reign of Christ. The, the issue that caused the, to- or the, the topic, the theological topic that caused this church to actually have to amend its statement of faith in order to call me to be your pastor. So here we are. Let me say at the start, as I've done through this series, I am not going to do a detailed comparison of all the different views, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining why I think you should read it this way instead of that way. I'm just going to preach the passage. I I will, though, point out along the way why I think this passage, Revelation 20, is as much about life after death as it is about life here on earth. Now, certainly there there is uh, 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 a prominent view and maybe even a majority view in this congregation. I'm aware that I'm I I well may be a minority. Um, There there is a a prominent view held by many and many of my closest friends that would understand that that this passage is mainly describing something that is yet in the future, the, the future reign of Christ. But I think that far from describing an entirely future reign of Christ, though that future reign is certainly in view, instead of describing an entirely future reign of Christ, John wants us to understand here in Revelation 20 that the reign of Christ with his people has already begun. I think that is the big idea of this passage. The reign of Christ with his people has already begun. And that has huge implications for life here on earth. We're going to look at this passage in, in four sections. It kind of comes to us and it's, it's um, three visions, but it comes to us in four sections. And we're going to look at it in those four sections. We're going to consider first the beginning of the end. Then we're going to consider the reign of the saints. Third, we're going to consider the defeat of the devil And finally, we're going to consider the end of the beginning. As we see, as we walk through this, as we see and consider what Christ's present reign means for our future life, I want you to consider as well what that future or how that future should shape your present even now. All right, well, let's dive in. First, the beginning of the end. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Okay, as I mentioned last week, I kind of cheated and I, I 
um, or was it two weeks ago, I included the beginning of this final section of Revelation in the previous section as we were looking at what was going on in Revelation uh, 17 to 19. We are now dropping into the middle of the seventh section of Revelation that began, and, and, and that seventh section actually began back in chapter 19, verse 11, where, when John says, then I saw, then I saw heaven opened. There are actually, in this final section of Revelation, a series of seven distinct visions. And each of them is introduced with that phrase, then I saw. We're going to see that seven times. Then I saw, then I saw, then I saw. Chapter 20, the then I saw, this is the fourth of those visions. Three of them, the first three, were at the end of chapter 19. And three more are here in chapter 20. We won't get to the seventh of those seventh visions until next week. But we're dropping in on that fourth of seven visions. And and what do we see? Well, we see John sees an angel coming down from heaven to bind Satan for a thousand years so that he would no longer deceive the nations until those thousand years were completed. Okay, so this raises all sorts of questions most of which I am not going to answer this morning. I just want you to be really clear on that. But I do want to look at three very pertinent questions about what's going on here in this vision. I want to look at the question of when. When does this happen? I want to look at the question of how. How does this happen? And then the question, what? What is going on here? (laughs) Right? What, What is this binding that is being referred to? Let's start with the when and, and then the how. Now, the various views that are out there about the millennium all involve other scripture passages other than Revelation 20. And I am not going to preach those other passages today. I'm not going to get into all, all of that complexity. I'm going to focus on this passage in its context. I want to observe that uh, for the premillennial view, the premillennial view holds that this event, chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, This is in the future, after Christ's second coming, but before the final judgment day. Now, there are a lot of good reasons to hold that view. Uh, There there are many reasons, actually, to hold that view. One of them, and I think the one that's most pertinent to us in just the context of our passage, is, is the sense of progression from Revelation 19. Remember, we're in the middle of this series of visions. This is the fourth of seven. And I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that back in Revelation 19, in that first vision, uh, beginning there in verse 11, that the rider on the white horse is Christ at his second coming. Now, now that's a view that basically everybody agrees with. The, the pre-mill believes that. The, the, the post-mill believes that. The the Amel believes that. Everybody agrees that in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, we are seeing Christ arrive at his second coming. So why, then, don't I think chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, follows after the second coming? Well, remember, as we've seen throughout Revelation, that phrase, then I saw, introduces the next vision. But it doesn't necessarily introduce the next event 
in history. We've seen this several times where John sees one vision and then he sees another vision and then he sees another vision and that's the way he describes them. But remember, as we've walked through Revelation, we've gotten to the end of the world quite a few times already. We've seen Judgment Day over and over and over again, only for John to kind of rewind like a Christopher Nolan movie and say, right, we're going to look at it again, but now from a different angle, a different perspective. I think that's what's going on here. Let me explain why. In Revelation chapters 12 to 14, we are introduced to the great enemies of Christ and his people. And they are introduced in a particular order. We meet first the dragon, Satan, and then we meet the beast and the false prophet who work together. And then last, we meet Babylon. And they are introduced to us. And we see these descriptions of their opposition to Christ and the persecution that they bring in their own different ways to the church. Then in chapters 17 to 20, what we see, what John shows us, is the final judgment of each of those enemies, but now in reverse order to the way they were introduced. So we met Babylon last. We saw her judgment first. We met the beast and the false prophet, and then we saw the beast and the false prophet defeated at the end of Revelation 19. The first enemy, though, that we were introduced to was the dragon, And now finally in chapter 20, John has rewound again, having shown us the defeat of Babylon, rewound, having shown us the defeat of the beast and the false prophet. Now he's rewound and we are going to see the defeat of Satan. And that judgment begins right here in verses one to three with the binding of Satan. Now, when does that happen? Brothers and sisters, I think Jesus told us when that happens. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. There he was being accused by by the Pharisees and and the scribes of, of driving out demons by the power of Satan. And in response, he says, if Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. And how then will his kingdom stand? But if I drive out demons by the spirit of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first binds the strong man? Exact same word as used in Revelation 20. Jesus is using in Matthew 12. And actually this gets repeated in all the synoptic gospels. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first binds the strong man? Then... He can plunder the house. When did the binding of Satan happen? I think according to Jesus, it happened with his first coming, beginning with his ministry of casting out demons and culminating at the cross. Now, Paul will pick up this idea and he answers the question, how, how how did this binding happen? In Colossians 2, Paul writes that on the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. God triumphed over them in him. The message of the gospel is that through his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ defeated Satan. 
He, he bound him so that he could come and plunder Satan's kingdom of men and women who for millennia had been trapped in the darkness of Satan's lies and deceit. That's the when and the how. But what does it mean that Satan is bound? After all, we've seen a lot of Satan's activity in the book of Revelation. And if you've been paying attention, we're seeing a lot of Satan's activity in the world. It doesn't seem like he's all that bound. I think the binding that John describes here in the first three verses of chapter 20 is quite specific. During Christ's millennial reign, Satan is bound so that he may no longer be able to deceive the nations. He won't be able to deceive the nations anymore. You you, you see, deception is what Satan has been up to from the very beginning. I I mean, this is where he started with Adam and Eve, right? Did God really say? God God didn't say. You're not not really going to die if you disobey God. No, he's been deceiving from the beginning, and deceiving is what he does. Jesus said that when Satan lies, he speaks from his own nature, because he is a liar and the father of lies. John chapter 8, verse 44. In his deception, Satan has held the world captive in unbelief. But what did Jesus say? He came as the way, the truth, and the life. John 14. And he promised that the truth, the truth that is him, will set us free. John 8, verse 32. Friends, I think this is what the Great Commission is all about. But before he ascended to heaven, Jesus said... All authority has been given to me. All authority. Not some authority, not limited authority. All authority has been given to me. And then what did he do? He sent his disciples out with with a message. And he is still sending. He sends us out. He sends us out to the nations with a message of salvation for millennia before Christ came. God's promise of salvation was confined to one ethnic people, the the nation of Israel. Paul described the, the rest of the nations, the nations outside of Israel, as those, the Gentiles, as those without God and without hope in the world in Ephesians 2. But now with the gospel, light And life has dawned all over the world. No longer is the whole world shut up in darkness and Satan's night. Instead, the good news goes forth and wherever it goes, captives are set free. Wherever it goes, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, people are set free from Satan's lies. People are set free from Satan's captivity. They are set free as they repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Friends, the millennial reign of Christ began with his first coming, when he defeated Satan and walked triumphantly out of the grave. Now, I I, I get it. 
a thousand years. It's been more than a thousand years since he did that. I, I, I understand. But I also understand that every other number we've encountered in Revelation has been symbolic. So I'm not sure why this one shouldn't be considered symbolic either. Uh, ten to the third, right? Ten times ten times ten. The, the, the most complete number of of kind of uh, symbolism for, for, for an eon, for, for an age, the church age, the age of the gospel. Now, I know that when we were looking at Revelation chapter 11 and the tribulation, I told you, welcome to the tribulation. We're in it, though it very well may get worse. Well, What I'm telling you today is, believers, welcome to the millennium. And I'm certain it's going to get better. Now you think, how could we be in the tribulation and in the millennium at the same time? Well, isn't this the message of the entire New Testament? That the kingdom has come. But the kingdom is coming. We are in the already but not yet I don't like the phrase, ah, millennial. I think a better way of describing what I'm I'm teaching here is inaugurated millennial. The millennium has begun. Is it consummated? No. Oh, but it is here. Do you see then why John would save this vision or why in God's plan of giving him these visions... This one would be saved for the very end. What what has John been doing all through this book of Revelation? He has been talking to people who are under pressure, who are being persecuted, who are being pushed to the brink, maybe ready to give up, maybe ready to compromise. And so right here at the end, having been very realistic with them about how bad it can be, he gives them this vision. Yes, Satan can still harass Yes, Satan can still inspire the the beastly powers of this world to persecute. But you know what Satan cannot do? He cannot stop the spread of the gospel. He can't. He has been bound. He can no longer deceive everyone with impunity. Oh, he'll try. But Satan cannot deceive the elect. He is bound. He is restrained. His power is limited. Now, I'm not saying, obviously, that that, that doesn't mean the, the, the I'm, not, I'm not saying that the world is going to get better and better. I'm, I'm not post mill. That's another discussion. It, it, it doesn't mean that we're not going to face increasing opposition. John's been really clear on all of that. What it does mean is that those whom Christ is saving His elect will hear, they will respond, they will believe as the gospel goes out to all the world. Brothers and sisters, the Great Commission is not aspirational. We didn't just send the Rileys to Iraq on a suicide mission. We're not about to send the Sylvesters out to their doom. We are sending them out with the authority of the risen, conquering, reigning Christ 
who has bound Satan so that their message will be heard. Their message will be believed and people will be rescued from Satan's darkness and night and into our Lord's glorious light forever. Brothers and sisters, the days look dark. I get it. You you, you look at our country and you look at what's going on and it is discouraging. Do not be discouraged. Christ is even now reigning. The millennium has already begun. Satan has been bound. So even here in Portland, proclaim the gospel with confidence. Because the beginning of the end has already begun. And that leads us, second, to the reign of the saints. So look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. All right, the scene now shifts. We've got a new vision. This is the fifth vision. The scene now shifts to heaven. Why do I say it's heaven? Well, that's actually the only place where we see thrones set up. Uh, in the book of Revelation. If you're seeing thrones, you know you're in heaven. Yes, there is a reference to Satan's throne on earth. And when we get visions of thrones, we know we are in heaven. And we, we see it because what does John see? Well, John sees the souls of the martyrs, as well as the souls of those who may not have been martyred, but who refuse to give their allegiance to the beast. Remember, that's what that mark of the beast or the number of, of the beast stood for, uh, a giving of one's allegiance to this world. John sees the souls of those who died for the sake of the gospel and the souls of those who remain faithful in their allegiance to Christ in the gospel. And, and there they are in heaven. And he tells us these souls are reigning with Christ for a thousand years. So we're in that same time period. The millennium, the church age. Now, John calls this the first resurrection, which implies that there's going to be a second resurrection. And and the blessing of this resurrection, you see that there in in verse six, the blessing of this resurrection is that the second death, eternal death, eternal condemnation in hell, that, that, that second death has no power over them. But that, of course, implies that there's a first death. What is John showing us here? I think John is giving us a picture of life after the first death for the believer. The the, the second resurrection in which body and soul are reunited and all stand before the the, the throne of God in heaven. That's not occurred yet. We're going to get to that at the end of this chapter. But for those in Christ, as as the song puts it, it is not death to die. 
When a believer dies, he or she is immediately in the presence of the Lord. Now, now remember, as we've seen all through Revelation, the, these visions are they're, they're symbolic. They're, they're, they're using all sorts of, of, of symbols. So I'm not saying that you should expect that like there's some heavenly angelic like carpenter crew that is preparing like a, a new throne for every soul right as they arrive. It's like, in, you know, here's your seat. That's, I don't think that's the idea. Don't think literally. The idea is that when believers die, they are immediately in the presence of the Lord and they are given authority. Authority, we're told to judge. Authority to rule. This is exactly what Jesus promised to those who persevere in the faith, who do not give their allegiance to the beast, but continue throughout this life, despite what comes, giving their allegiance to him. You could look back, actually, at, at, the, at the letters. I know it was a long time ago that I preached through the letters, but you could look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron sceptre. He will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from my father. I will also give him the morning star. And then you see the same, uh, a similar promise in, in chapter three, verse 21 to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you want to know what you're going to be doing in heaven when you get there? before the last day, before judgment day, when your soul is reunited with your body, I'll tell you what you're not going to be doing. You're not going to be floating around amongst the clouds with harp in hand. That is not your future. According to John, your future, if you are a believer in Christ, is to exercise real and permanent authority from heaven. Reigning with Christ. What in the world does that mean? I have no idea. I actually don't. Um, part of it is because I think when we think of reigning, what we think of is, is executive power. Like telling people what to do and making things happen. Or maybe, or maybe we think of just like privilege, you, you know, a, a life of great wealth and luxury. The idea here. As, as, it's, as it's described to us uh, in verses 4 to 6, the idea here is judging. The saints, as they reign with Christ, will be given the authority to judge. In some way or another, the saints in heaven will be agreeing with and participating with Christ in his judgment of history, in his judgment of evil, in his judgment of the nations, and indeed participating with him in his judgment of Satan himself. What that exactly means, how that exactly works out, I don't know. We'll find out when we get there. But I do think it means something for us now. It means at least two things for us as believers now. First, through faith in Christ, if you are a believer, you have already experienced this first resurrection. 
Brothers and sisters, you have been born again with a spiritual life that cannot die. You were dead, but now you are alive with a spiritual life that cannot die. And so, so what should we be doing? Well, well, Paul tells us in Colossians 3, since this, is, since this is what's happened to you, set your minds. That is, set your, set your hopes, set your aspirations, set your priorities on things above where Christ is. Because your life is already hidden in him. You are already hidden in Christ. You are already seated with him in heavenly places in some mysterious spiritual way. You're already there spiritually. So set your mind there. Set your priorities there. Yeah, we're in tribulation now. But though we are in tribulation here below, the reign of the saints has already begun above and we are participating with them in that spiritual reign. I think this is actually... What the, what the symbolism of baptism is in part all about. We're going to conclude our service this, this morning with the celebration of baptism. And what happens when we immerse someone in baptism? We, we take them down into the water because we understand that they have died with Christ. And then we, we bring them up out of the water because we understand that if you are a Christian, you have been resurrected in Christ and are now walking in newness of life. The life of heaven itself is at work in a believer. That's the way Paul describes it in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. What does that mean for you now? It means that you were once unable not to sin. You you were Satan's captive. You were dead in your sins. You, You always sinned. But now in newness of life, you are, believer, able not to sin. I'm not saying you'll you'll be sinless. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. You you are still able to sin. But you now have a spiritual life and power at work in you that enables you to say no to the world and the flesh and the devil. So I want to encourage you. I I think sometimes, particularly when when we become very aware of of some of those sins that just continue to plague us, we, we get defeated. And we begin to think we're just, we're just stuck. Nothing's changed. Nothing's happened. You feel like you almost have to give in to those persistent sins. But if you are in Christ, that's not true. You are not defeated. You are not trapped. The Holy Spirit is at work in you. And you now have the power to say no. To say no to sin. To flee from the, the lusts. That, that would entangle you and to walk in newness of life with Jesus Christ. That's, that's the first implication of this for us now. But, but I think second, if our future is to reign in glory, it changes the way we think about our present because it means that our present, whatever we're going through now, is designed by God to prepare us for that calling, to prepare us for that honor of reigning with Christ in heaven. Believer, Christian, you are being fitted for heaven. 
Just like over in England, you know, the royal family takes the, the young princes and princesses and kind of trains them for their future role. And particularly the, the prince who will sit on the throne, he, he is trained for that responsibility. Well, why would it be any different? The, the, the Lord is using your life now. The joys, but also the trials. The, the sufferings and the triumphs, all of that. He is fitting you, training you for heaven. So believer, is not, is not a little discipline in this life worth it to be prepared to reign with Christ in the next? We're so tempted to grumble about our trials. We're, we're so tempted to complain about the Lord's discipline in our life. But understand what the Lord is doing. He's preparing you to reign with his son. Paul reminds us the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. Romans chapter 8. Understand this then. The world can take off our heads, but it cannot deny us our crowns. Oh, the world, the world may, it may behead you for your testimony for the gospel. It may take your head clean off. Oh, but the world cannot touch your crown. Not if you are in Christ. That is your future. You are going to reign. So don't give up. Don't give up. Keep, keep your eyes fixed on the future, where you are headed. Be faithful. For the Lord has a crown in store for those who persevere to the end. Friends, the beginning of the end has already begun. And the saints are even now reigning with Christ. Live like it. Now that leads us, third, to the certainty of the defeat of the devil. We can be certain of the defeat of the devil. Look at uh, verse 7 of chapter 20. Verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, remember back in verse 3, we were told that the millennium, which I've explained is the church age, the millennium will come to an end and Satan will be allowed to deceive the nations once again for a short time. And these verses are describing that time. Released from whatever restraint that the Lord has placed on Satan, released at the end of the church age, Satan goes out and he will deceive the nations. He will deceive them globally and universally, I think, and he will gather them to annihilate the worldwide church, which is described here in this vision as both the beloved city, the new Jerusalem, and the encampment of the saints like Israel in the wilderness. 
This vision draws on the imagery of Ezekiel 38 and 39. We heard a portion of that read earlier by Todd. The the armies of Gog and Magog as they amass against the people of God. Friends, in these verses, we are seeing yet another vision of Armageddon. The final battle. The end of history. But just as we saw in the previous visions of Armageddon, because remember, we saw this. We've seen this battle already. We've seen it in Revelation 16 and we've seen it in Revelation 19. Just like in those places, boy, the the battle is coming. It looks dire. It looks like the people of God are going to be wiped out. And then it's over before it begins. Which is just the way Ezekiel prophesied it. Fire falls from heaven and judges the nations. God's people are delivered. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire, just as the beast and false prophet were in previous visions. You understand that all of these visions are happening simultaneously. It's not that the beast and false prophet go there first and then a little later Satan joins them. No, we're looking at the same event yet now from a different perspective, focused on the judgment of Satan himself. And just like the judgment on the rest, The judgment on Satan is eternal. So when's this going to happen? Well, there are many false prophets that have been out there that have declared on such and such a date, the end of the world will come. Here's the thing. Since I think this, uh, since I think that the millennium is a symbolic number, we don't actually know how long it's going to last And so we just aren't able to mark the date on the calendar. What's clear is that it is going to get worse at the end. Uh, I have friends who are, I've told you about this. I have friends like, like Tim Keller who are optimistic amillennialists. That's not me. I'm a, I'm a pessimistic amillennialist. I think it's going to get worse as we draw to the end. I think John's really clear here. There will be a season, thankfully a short season, described in various ways in different parts of Scripture. But the emphasis always short, in which the Lord ceases to restrain Satan's ability to deceive. And at that point, the devil's rage will be fierce. The threat of persecution and even the annihilation of the church will be imminent. We should be prepared for that day. We don't know when it will come. And so we should be prepared. We should not be like those who think it's not coming and so that when it does arrive, we're surprised. We're caught off guard. No, no, we should be prepared. I think probably throughout history, there have been many times when Christians thought this is it. Right, as the, as the barbarian hordes invaded the Roman Empire and churches were burned to the ground, as, as, as the Islamic armies marched across North Africa, which had been a stronghold for Christianity, and again, churches are burned to the ground. In, in, in the Reformation, as the forces of the Counter-Reformation and the Spanish Inquisition attacked believers for being believers, m- many of the Puritans thought, this is it. We're at the end. We weren't. 
or, or maybe the end in one sense is a rolling end. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have the mind of God on that one. What I know is we should not be surprised. We should be prepared. But John's point here is not how terrible it will be. His emphasis is how short and unsuccessful it's going to be. You, you see that, right? The, the, the nations amass, they gather like the sand of the sea to, to march against the church, to destroy the church, and boom, it's over. They fail. Fire from heaven falls. I take it that's symbolic, but it kind of doesn't matter. The point is, when the end comes, when the last day comes, it will come in an instant. Opposition and persecution will be stopped in its tracks. John's point here, see, isn't fear-mongering. He's not trying to turn us all into a bunch of preppers. It's encouragement. The church is preserved and protected to the very end. We've already been told in the first three verses that Satan is on a short leash. Now we learn he is also on a short clock. While the millennium, while the millennium lasts, while this church age lasts, the gospel goes forth and it is not stopped. And when the millennium ends, the end comes quickly. So Christian, no matter how bad it gets, do not fear. Do not give in to fear. Do not live a life of fear. We are safe. We are saved not because of our strategy. We are saved not because of our great numbers or our wealth. We are saved not because of our political power. We are saved not because of our superior apologetics or whatever. We are safe because God has guaranteed we are safe in his word. Though we feel threatened, God has said he will defeat our foe without our aid or help. He will do it. What did Jesus say over and over and over again to his disciples when he was with them? Don't be afraid. So what did he say to his disciples right before he ascended? Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Christian, Jesus' message hasn't changed. Don't be afraid. He is with us. And he will not leave us until he brings us safely home. Well, the end of the age brings us forth and finally to the end of the beginning. The end of the beginning. Look at chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. 
death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I'm calling this the, the end of the beginning because the very first words in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In this scene, we've come to the very last scene of history. And the earth and the heavens flee from his presence. And there's nowhere to be found for them. Creation is judged and destroyed. It's a remarkable bookend. It's not the only piece of symmetry at work here in our passage. Perhaps you notice that as, as we've walked through this passage, after, after the binding of Satan, the next thing we saw were thrones in heaven set up and, and the saints sitting on those thrones reigning with Christ in judgment with the final defeat of Satan. What do we see? The great white throne. The imagery is from Daniel 7. The ancient of days is seated on that throne. And we know from Revelation 5 that the lamb stands there as well. The court of heaven is being convened. Evidence books are opened. And for the second time in our passage, John sees dead people. This time it's not just the saints and it's not just souls. It's, it's everyone Great and small, the second resurrection has occurred. Body and soul reunited. All the places where the dead are found, the sea and death and Hades, give up their dead and body and soul all stand before the judge of heaven and earth to give an account for their deeds. You see, it's not the dead who have unfinished business. It's God. And he's about to finish it. John Wesley described this scene as the great assize. That's the word that the English used for the, the regional courts that would happen around the country periodically. When all the people would gather with all of their cases, both criminal and civil, and the judges would gather and evidence would be heard and decisions would be handed down. Wesley preached at one of those in 1757. And he rightly observed that in human courts, for want of evidence, some who are guilty may escape. But there is no want of evidence in God's court. All the eyewitnesses are there. No one's missing. All are ready to respond to God's summons and subpoena. Every person that you ever sinned against is there, ready and able to give testimony against you. The demons of hell who inspired every wicked thought and deed you ever committed, they're there. And they will not resist God's summons. The angels of heaven who observed the things in your mind, in your life, 
that no one else saw, when no one else was watching, oh, they're there, ready to give testimony. But most of all, Wesley observed, worst of all, your own conscience will be there. He writes, a thousand witnesses in one is conscience. Now, no more capable of being either blinded or silenced, but constrained to know and speak the naked truth, touching all your thoughts and words and actions. And is conscience as a thousand witnesses? Yea, but God is as a thousand consciences. We spend most of our life deceiving ourselves, silencing our conscience as it gives testimony against ourselves. But on that day, each of our consciences will be set free to speak, and they will speak freely. All are present, all are judged. The penalty, we're told, is the the second death, eternal conscious torment. And it is quite clear that all are guilty. But not all are condemned. You, You noticed there another book was opened, which is the book of life. Back in Revelation 13, it's called the the Lamb's Book of Life, in which were written before the foundation of the world the names of God's elect. Now, why should those names, why should those names that that were written there escape the punishment that they deserve? Well, the answer is not for anything in themselves, but only because through faith in the Lamb who was slain, their punishment was already paid. Friends, this is what happened at the cross. This is very much John's point all through the book of Revelation. There is only one judgment day. There is only one day of the Lord. And that day happened at Calvary. The cross was not merely a a demonstration of God's love. It was not an example for us to follow. It wasn't a display of how serious God takes his honor and our sin. The cross was judgment day. It was a legal, penal substitution on the cross. The punishment that we deserve was laid on the eternal son of God in the person of the sinless Jesus Christ. That is the message of the gospel. That is the the good news of the gospel. Because it means then that all whose names are in the book of life have already been through judgment day. Far from being a travesty of justice in which the guilty go free for lack of evidence. No, the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, the list of names for whom he died 
That book is a vindication of God's justice in which all who repent and put their faith in Christ are set free because the penalty has been paid in full. Friends, that is the good news. That is the best news of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to understand. In Revelation 20, John sees the dead twice. And it, his point couldn't be clearer. It's not the dead who have unfinished business, things to, to wrap up before they go to that certain lovely great white light beyond. No, it's the living who have unfinished business. The reign of Christ with his people has already begun. The reign of Christ in judgment over the wicked is yet in the future. The day of judgment draws ever closer. But for those in Christ, judgment has already been rendered. Friends, your future is one of either uninterrupted glory as you reign with Christ as one of those for whom he died, or your future is one of uninterrupted woe under the just judgment of Christ. It is not the dead who have unfinished business. It is the living. As Wesley urged his audience in 1757, so I urge you today, Jesus Christ is a merciful Savior, but he is also the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He only has one throne. His throne is a throne of justice. He only has one crown. That crown is a diadem of power. There is only one day of the Lord. There is only one judgment day. But friend, that throne appeared early in time as a cruel cross of wood. And he wore that crown as a wreath of thorns that shed his blood. All will kneel before that throne. The one throne of the one king. The question is, Which aspect of that throne will you kneel before? Will it be the throne that is the cross, the throne of mercy? Or will it be that great white throne, a throne of unerring justice? Wesley said, and I I say to you today, make proof of his mercy rather than his justice.
make proof of his love rather than the thunder of his power. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment and consider what it means in your life right now that Christ reigns. That he reigned from the cross and that he will reign from that throne and that you will appear before one of them. And consider what unfinished business you have. Lord God, we pray that you would keep us from Satan's deceit and our own self-deception. We pray that you would allow us to see the, the beauty of Christ. Christ crucified. Christ reigning from the cross in mercy. We, we pray that, that you would cause us to kneel and submit to his reign in our lives. That we might know the blessing of reigning with him even now and forever. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.